Tonight we're going to move into my favorite book in the entire Bible as an electrical engineer by background. The book of Numbers. I love numbers. So over the next several weeks, bring your calculators, mechanical pencils. Bruce, you can bring your slide rule. I'm, that's bad. I always give him a hard time, but we love Bruce here. No, we're not going to be doing math on Wednesday nights, but we are going to do a very, very exciting study in the book of Numbers. Wonderful book, lots of great lessons. So turn to Numbers chapter 1. Page 147 if you're using a Bible under the seat in front of you. Numbers chapter 1. Father, as we turn to your word now, I pray that you would speak by the power of your Holy Spirit. Lord, every time we open your word, we discover new things about you. And that's what we want. Our hearts tonight are to know you better. To know what you desire for us. To know how we can serve you better. Lord, to learn more about how we need to live these lives you've given us. So speak. We are your servants. We're here to hear. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. So how did this book get that title, Numbers? Well, we got it from the Greek Septuagint version of the Bible. The Greek Septuagint version of the Bible, all of the Old Testament Bibles have been translated to Greek. And the title in that version is Arithmoi, from where we get our English word arithmetic. And so we brought it from that Greek translation into our English. But why numbers? Why arithmetic? Well, there is a lot of numerical data in the book of Numbers. In fact, in chapters 1, 3, and 4, a census is taken of the nation of Israel by tribe, all added up. And then in chapter 26, another census is taken of the nation of Israel some 40 years later. So there's numerical data. That's why It's called Numbers. If you had a Hebrew copy of the Bible tonight, the name of this book would be Bamidbar. In the Hebrew Bible, most of the books in the Old Testament get their name from the first phrase in the book. And the first phrase in the book of Numbers in Hebrew is Bamidbar, which means in the wilderness. And that would be a better title, I think, for this book, because the nation of Israel is in the wilderness in the book of Numbers. In fact, they'll be in the wilderness for 40 years, unnecessarily so because of their lack of faith. Now, it's important to understand the timing of this book. So I want to recap just a little bit this history of the nation of Israel. 
Israel was held in bondage in Egypt for some 400 years. God sent Moses to deliver them. They were delivered miraculously. The ten plagues. The Passover. The miraculous crossing of the Red Sea. After the crossing of the Red Sea, the nation came to Mount Sinai, and they camped at the foot of Mount Sinai, and they would stay at the foot of Mount Sinai for well over one year, camped right there at the bottom of that mountain. And it was at that time that they received the Law of Moses. That's when they received the Ten Commandments, all of the dietary restrictions, all of the code of ethics put forth in the Law of Moses. It was there that they were given the blueprints for the tabernacle system, the courtyard, that mobile tent-like structure. It was there that they were given the instructions for the priesthood and all the sacrifices and all of that information. Well, here in the book of Numbers, when it opens, they have received the law. The tabernacle has been built. The priesthood is in operation. And now it's time for them to move. Now it's time for them to travel from Mount Sinai through the wilderness to the promised land. Now I want you to just for a moment think of the logistics of that, moving two million plus people through the wilderness. The elderly, the women and children, the nursing Infants, all of that. The logistics in moving that many people through the wilderness on that journey, very, very difficult. And so, here in the book of Numbers, the Lord tells his people exactly how they are to travel, how they are to march, the formation that they are to get in line with and march through the wilderness. And here in the book of Numbers, God also tells his people exactly how they are supposed to camp when they stop in the wilderness. And it's very detailed and it's very ordered. And so first, it must be determined how many people are in the nation. And that's why they take this census. So look at verse 1 of chapter 1, book of Numbers. It says, Now the Lord spoke to Moses in the wilderness of Sinai, in the tabernacle of meeting on the first day of the second month, in the second year after they had come out of the land of Egypt, saying, Take a census of all the congregation of the children of Israel by their families, by their fathers' houses, according to the number of names, every male individually. From 20 years old and above, all who are able to go to war in Israel, you and Aaron, shall number them by their armies. And with you there shall be a man from every tribe, each one the head of his father's house. So they are commanded to take a census of all males 20 years and older by tribe. And more specifically, all males 20 years and older who are fit enough to be a soldier. Count all the soldiers by tribe. 
So they do that. Skip down to verse 20. Now the children of Reuben. Reuben, by the way, is the firstborn son, right, of Jacob, whose name was changed to Israel. So they start with the firstborn son. Now the children of Reuben, Israel's oldest son, their genealogies by their families, by their father's house, according to the number of names, every male individually from 20 years old and above, all who were able to go to war. Those who were numbered of the tribe of Reuben were how many? 46,500 soldiers in the tribe of Reuben. Okay, the rest of the chapter gives the numbers for all the rest. I've summed it up for you with this chart. Notice we have all of the tribes, Reuben, Simeon, Gad, Judah, Issachar, all the way down the list. For Reuben, we have 46,500. Judah had the most soldiers, 74,600. Manasseh had the fewer amount of soldiers, 32,000. 200. There are a total of 603,550 soldiers. The average tribal strength was 50,300 soldiers. So you have that many soldiers, and then you figure women and children. That's how you get to a population of well over 2 million in the wilderness. But I want you to notice here, count the soldiers. The soldiers were counted. The soldiers were set apart. And in a sense, the soldiers were honored. The soldiers play a very special role in the nation of Israel. They protect the people. They go out to battle. They're counted specifically. And I think every nation should honor its soldiers, don't you? Very, very important what God does with soldiers. And I certainly appreciate all the soldiers of this great country. So the soldiers are set apart. Now, by personal application, let me share with you that in the New Testament age, in the church age, all Christians are called to be soldiers. Did you know that? There is no restriction by gender or age. All Christians are called to be soldiers in the army of God. Now, I don't know if you know that. When you gave your life to Jesus Christ, you got saved, you became a child of God, but you were also enlisted in the army of God. And you are right in the midst of warfare. Now, Christian, maybe you didn't know that, but I want to tell you that tonight. You're a soldier, you're in the war. Paul said to young Timothy in 2 Timothy chapter 2, You therefore must endure hardship as a good soldier of Jesus Christ. No one engaged in warfare entangles himself with the affairs of this life, that he may please him who enlisted him as a soldier. Listen, as soldiers of Jesus Christ, we should be willing to endure hardship for Jesus Christ. Just like soldiers in an army, they leave home, they go into these faraway countries, they have all these sacrifices they make. Christian, you should be willing to do that for Jesus. 
as soldiers of Jesus Christ, we should not be entangled in the affairs of this life. Not immersed in all the distractions of this world. Imagine a soldier right in the middle of warfare, right in the middle of combat. And imagine a soldier right in that environment sitting on a tree stump checking Facebook. Or watching the latest movie on Netflix. Would you ever see a soldier doing that? In the midst of warfare? No. In warfare, you are zeroed in. You're not entangled with anything. Of this world. And Christian, as a soldier, that's what we need to be. We should not be distracted by all the details of this life. You are at war. Be on high alert. As soldiers of Jesus Christ, our supreme desire in life should be to please our enlisting officer. You know, your number one. Responsibility in life. Your number one desire in life as a Christian should be to please General Jesus. To hear his orders. To serve. To be involved in the fight. We are called to be courageous. We are called to be bold. The church in the New Testament is called to storm the gates of hell. Not sitting around. Aggressively in the fight. And all of us are called to that fight. Amen? Don't fall back from that fight. Don't go AWOL. Be involved. And remember... Jesus suffered so greatly and fought so valiantly for us. Let's fight with him. I've always loved the story that Steve Brown tells about a British soldier in the First World War. This soldier lost his heart for the battle, deserted his troops. Trying to reach the coast for a boat to England that night, he ended up wandering in the pitch black night hopelessly lost, couldn't see anything. In the darkness, he came across what he thought was a signpost. It was so dark that he began to climb the post so that he could read it. As he reached the top of the pole, he struck a match to see and found himself looking squarely into the face of Jesus Christ. He realized that rather than running into a signpost, he had climbed a roadside crucifix. At that moment... He remembered the one who had died for him, who had endured, who had never turned back. That next morning, the soldier was back in the trenches. Keep your eyes fixed on Jesus. Be numbered as one of the soldiers. And remember, Jesus isn't a general that sits in an ivory tower telling us to go out and suffer. He suffered before us, didn't he? He leads us in warfare. Okay. Does anybody see a tribe that's missing in that list? Huh? Levi. The tribe of Levi 
is not in the list. Now, why is Levi not in the list? Well, they're a very special tribe. They were not called to be soldiers. They were not warriors. They were the priests. They were the ministers that ministered to the Lord on behalf of the people full-time in the tabernacle area. Their job was to take care of the tabernacle and all of that spiritual leadership stuff that they were called to do. So Levi is not numbered here, but they are numbered in chapter 3. Turn very quickly to Numbers chapter 3. And look at verse 14. It says, Then the Lord spoke to Moses in the wilderness of Sinai, saying, Number the children of Levi by their fathers' houses, by their families. You shall number every male from a month old and above. So Moses numbered them according to the word of the Lord as he was commanded. These were the sons of Levi by their names, Gershon, Kohath, and Merari. Okay, so Levi had three sons, and they are numbered according to those three sons. The Gershonites, the Gohathites, and the Merahites. And in this census, they are to count every male one month old and older. So look at verse 18. We'll just look at the Gershonites. And these are the names of the sons of Gershon by their families, Libni and Shimei, and the sons of those other guys, and the sons of Merari by their families. Verse 21, from Gershon came the family of the Libnites and the family of the Shimites. These were the families of the Gershonites. Those who were numbered according to the number of all their males from a month old and above, of those who were numbered there were how many? 7,500. So 7,500 Gershonites. From one month up old and older. The males. Now, look what it says in verse 23. The families of the Gershonites were to camp where? Behind the tabernacle westward. So that's very important. The Gershonites... At camp, here's your tabernacle. They were to camp right next to the tabernacle on the west side. I'm trying to do it from your perspective. Yeah, that's right. Right here. 7,500 Gershonites. Look at verse 24. And the leader of the father's house of the Gershonites was El Asaph, the son of Leh. Please don't judge me on my pronunciation of Hebrew names. Check it out. The duties of the children of Gershon in the tabernacle of meeting included the tabernacle, the tent with its covering, the screen for the door of the tabernacle of meeting, the screen for the door of the court, the hangings of the court, which are around the tabernacle and the altar and their cords, according to all the work relating to them. Okay. So 7,500 Gershonites numbered They're on the west side of the tabernacle, and this was the part of the tabernacle that they were to take care of and carry in a very special way when the camp is to move. Okay, all that information is given for the rest 
of the sons of Levi. I'm just going to sum it up for you. Gershon, 7,500. They were to camp on the west side of the tabernacle. Kohath, 8,600. They were to camp on the south side of the tabernacle. Merari, 6,200. They were called to camp on the north side, a total of 22,300 men, one month and older. Y'all with me? Okay, you also find out in the chapter that Moses, Aaron, and Aaron's sons, the priests, they were to camp on the east side of the tabernacle, right next to the gate. They would protect the very entrance of the gate to the tabernacle. Then in chapter 4, there's another census that's taken. All the males in the tribe of Levi between the age of 30 and 50 are counted. Now, those are the guys that are going to do the actual work. 8,580 workers of the 22,300 males. These are the guys who will do all of that maintenance work of the tabernacle. So, you have this very specific census. You have this count. All of the tribes of Israel, including the Levites. And we know the position that the Levites were to take around the tabernacle when they camped. Okay. Let's talk about the positioning of the other tribes. Turn to chapter 2. Look at verse 1. And the Lord spoke to Moses and Aaron, saying, read it carefully with me. Every one of the children of Israel shall camp by his own standard, beside the emblems of his father's house. They shall camp some distance from the tabernacle of meeting. Okay? On the east side... Toward the rising of the sun, those of the standard of the forces with Judah shall camp according to their armies. Verse 4, and his army was numbered at 74,600. So Judah is going to camp on the east side. Look at verse 5. Those who camp next to him shall be the tribe of Issachar. Verse 6, and his army was numbered at 54,400. Then comes the tribe of Zebulun. Verse 8, his army was numbered at 57,400. Look at all the details. So all who were numbered according to their armies of the forces with Judah, 186,400, and these shall break camp first. Do you understand what that says? Okay. Here's the tabernacle on the uh, east side of the tabernacle. You'll have Judah, Zebulun, and who's the other guy? Issachar. All of their troops combined, 186,400. That's where they camp over here. And when it's time to break camp, they go first. Did you see that? Okay, 
The rest of the details are spread out there in chapter 2, but I want to show you a very insightful picture of how this worked. What's that right in the middle of the camp? That is the tabernacle. Okay, let's look to the east. Who's right at the door? Moses, Aaron, and the priests. Who also camps east? What we just read. Judah, Issachar, Zebulun. 186,400 soldiers. Camped all the way out. All right, let's look at the south. Who camped immediately south of the tabernacle? The Kohathites. And then Reuben, Simeon, Gad. Total of 151,450 soldiers. Okay, to the west. We read about the Gershonites, remember? 7,500. And then, I don't know if you can see that real good, but that's Ephraim, Manasseh, and Benjamin for a total soldier count of about 108,100. Okay, now let's look north. The Maramites, they camp immediately north of the tabernacle. And then north would be Dan, Asher, and Naphtali for a total of 157,000. 600 soldiers. Okay, so when you camp, you camp like that. Ordered. Just like that. Now, the glory of God was right here. The pillar of cloud during the day, right? The pillar of fire at night. When that pillar, when that fire lifted off and began to move. Chapter 2 tells us exactly how they were supposed to go. First, Judah, Issachar, Zebulun. They followed the cloud. Next would come Reuben, Simeon, Gad. They'd fall in line right behind them. While they're moving out, all these guys around here are packing up the tabernacle. Very carefully, just how it's supposed to be prescribed. And then they follow that group. After they go, here comes this group. Following right along. And then the last camp that would fall into line would be this. You see how that went? Boom. Boom. This takes off. This takes off. This takes off. And then when the pillar of fire stops, when the cloud stops... Everyone goes back into their place. Just like that. Pretty cool, huh? Very logistical. Now, that's the thing that really stands out for me. Throughout the Bible, you, you, you just find out that God is this God of order, isn't he? There's structure to God. He's very, very... Organize. You see how ordered he is in setting the camp and the march. You look at creation and you see how ordered he is in creation. We have a God of order, don't we? He's not into chaos. He's not into craziness. 
He's still a God of order today in the New Testament age. And did you know that there is supposed to be an order to the church? You know, every now and then I meet Christians who think church should just be a free-for-all. You just do church any way you want to do it, man. No. There's an order. I meet Christians every now and then who think, hey, a church service, a public church, just free-for-all. Do whatever you want. No. God is a God of order. And the order is spelled out very clearly in the New Testament as to how a church is to behave when they gather publicly. In fact, Paul told Titus in Titus chapter 1, verse 5, For this reason I left you in Crete, that you should set in order the things that are lacking, and appoint elders in every city as I commanded you. At that time, there were a bunch of local churches all over the place in chaos. There was no structure. Paul said, Titus, go out there, appoint elders, set order to those local churches. There's supposed to be order in every local church. Christian, there's supposed to be order in your life. There's order in the family. There's order in the home, in a marriage. The husband is to be the spiritual leader of the home. He's to love his wife as Christ loves the church. The wife is to be submissive to the husband. The kids are to be submissive and respectful of their parents and obedient to their parents. There's an order. We should strive for that order. Family life isn't a free-for-all, although I'll admit sometimes it feels that way, doesn't it? I know my life gets very chaotic at night. But we should all be striving for order. Why? Because God's a God of order. Christian, your very life should have an order to it. Your priorities in life should be the priorities that God wants for your life. You should structure your life. You should organize your life, not in such a way that makes you happy. No, as a Christian, your life should be ordered according to what God has said. And that means as Christians, we are to set priorities in place whereby we are growing in our knowledge of the Lord. Where we are making time for fellowship. Order. Now, I want you to notice something else. Right here in the heart of the camp, we have the tabernacle, right? And as we just mentioned, this is where the glory of God would rest, the presence of God. In this camp, who was closest to the presence of God? Who camped immediately around? The Levites, right? The full-time servants of the Lord. Those who ministered to the Lord in very practical, tangible ways. They got to enjoy and know the presence of God in a more fuller way than everyone camped out here. 
Okay, now in the New Testament, are there Levites? No. In the New Testament, all of us as Christians have equal access to God, don't we? All of us do. Through Jesus Christ. There's no distinction. None whatsoever. Any Christian can seek the Lord as much as they want. Nothing's holding anybody back. But I believe that there's a principle that we can apply to our lives in the church just from this picture. And that is, if you serve Christ in very tangible ways, I believe that you are going to know and experience the presence of Christ to a greater degree than you would If you don't. Serving Christ. In tangible ways. In active ways. In ministry. Man, I think if you do that. In fact, I know that if you do that. You are going to know and experience the presence of God. More fully in your life. Because listen. When you serve God, when you get involved in ministry, man, I'll tell you what, you must depend upon God. And you are going to be praying to God. And you are going to be looking for God to help you in the way you are serving him. And in doing that, you're going to know him better. You're going to grow. So I want to encourage you tonight. Maybe you're a Christian here tonight and you say, you know, I don't feel God anymore. I'm not experiencing him. I don't know his presence. Well, let me challenge you. Are you serving God? In a very practical way. Are you serving him? And by serving God in a practical way, I'm not talking about just showing up to church and listening to a Bible study. You know what this is when we get together for church? This is huddle. This is when the people of God get together and we get recharged and we get equipped to go out and minister in practical ways. Are you ministering to God and God's people in practical ways. If you do that, I promise you're going to grow and you're going to know the presence of God. You're going to know and experience and enjoy the presence of God to a more fuller degree. Listen, if you sign up and you go help those toddlers or you go work in that nursery, you are going to need the strength of the Holy Spirit in your life. You hear me? And you will experience the strength of the Holy Spirit using you. You'll know his presence. You go out there and you help in that children's ministry in a practical way. I promise you, you're going to get to know God better. You sign up and you become a greeter or an usher 
in a church. And your responsibility is to welcome every single person that comes through those doors and make them know and feel the love of Christ. Man, I promise you, you're going to come to know and experience his presence more. I dare you to go work at a soup kitchen for Jesus Christ. Take a Saturday and go feed the homeless at the Gospel Rescue Mission. You will experience the presence of Christ. If you ever get the opportunity to join a team, to go on a mission team, on a mission trip, going into Juarez or going anywhere, I promise you, you will experience the presence of Jesus Christ. Do you understand? The Christian who just sits back and does nothing and then scratches their head wondering, I don't feel God. Well, get out there. Start serving. Those who serve are closest to the presence of God. Go do it. It's so important that we're serving in practical ways. Practical ways. If you're at church all the time, taking in Bible studies all the time, but you don't exercise, you know what happens? You get fat. Spiritually, you get overwhelmed. Out of shape. You want to be healthy as a Christian? You get fed and then you exercise. You go out and you serve Christ. That's health. And I would challenge every single one of us here tonight. Not only let's not let's not only are we soldiers in the body of Christ, but we should be servants. Okay, now, I want to show you something that is spectacular about this camp. I want you to pretend that you are getting a bird's eye view of the camp. Let's say you're at the top of a mountain, okay? Or maybe you're in a helicopter. And you're flying over the camp of Israel the way God told them to camp. And let's say it's nighttime. And let's say every tent in the camp has a oil lamp lit. So here you are, bird's eye view, looking at the camp of Israel as God specifically told them to camp. And all you see are these lights. Okay. Check this leg out. How long is it? 186,400. So you can see that going quite a bit that way. Check this leg out. 151 plus 8, we're about 160. This leg, 157 plus 6, oh, close to 160. These legs are about the same. What about this leg? Considerably shorter. And by the way, when they were to camp, they were to camp that way. And that way, and that way, and that way. Now look at the proportions of the leg. What do you think that would look like? The cross. That's cool. Is that not cool or what? 
when God looked down upon the camp, he saw a cross. In Numbers 22, we're going to get to the story where they camp in the valley of Moab and the king of Moab, a guy by the name of Balak. Man, he's afraid of this camp. He's afraid that they're about to get defeated. And so Balak calls a false prophet by the name of Balaam. You remember the story? And Balaam is called to pronounce a curse on the nation of Israel. And it specifically says that Balaam climbs up the mountain to get a good look at the camp to pronounce a curse upon the camp. Is he able to do so? He cannot pronounce a curse. He can only pronounce a a blessing. I think that false prophet saw the cross. And you can't curse the cross. You can only bless the cross. In the Bible, in the Old Testament, And in the New Testament, the cross is the heart. You will see pictures of it in every book. The heart of all biblical revelation is the cross. The instrument of death on which Jesus would die. For the sins of the world. And and it sums up the whole message of the Bible. The cross tells us of the horror of sin. That we have all sinned. We all fall short of the glory of God. That sin must be paid for. And it also tells us the story of God's love and grace. God loves us so much that he sent his son. To hang on that cross. To take all of our sins upon him. To die in our place. So that if you place your faith in Jesus Christ, all your sins get washed away. It's the heart of the Bible. And isn't it cool that way back here in Numbers 1 through 4, God specifically orders his people to camp like that. As God's people... We should march under the symbol of the cross. We should camp under the symbol of the cross. Our message is the message of the cross. Paul said in Galatians chapter 6, But God forbid that I should boast except in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ, by whom the world has been crucified to me and I to the world. This is our message, folks. We are the people of the cross. And we get the opportunity and the command from General Jesus to go out and share that message of the cross with other people. Kind of neat what you learn from a bunch of numbers, right? I mean, you come to certain parts of the scripture and it seems so dry. 
In fact, a lot of people, they start their Bible reading plans for the year on January 1st. And right about the time they get to a place like Numbers, they stop reading their Bible daily because you have all of these dry details. Listen, there's no accident in the Scripture. Every detail matters. And I I submit to you that every detail, every prophecy, every story points to a Savior who would come and die on that cross for your sins and rise again that third day. All of history, all of biblical revelation, planned from beginning. Let's be servants of Jesus. Let's be soldiers for Jesus. Let's be ordered in our lives as Christians. And let's be champions of the cross. Now, it's very possible that there might be some here tonight or some who are listening who have never received the essential message of Scripture. That is illustrated in so many different ways. Jesus has died for you. He rose again for you. And by his shed blood, all of your sins can be forgiven. Washed away. You can get a brand new start. You can be saved. You can become born again. Has the central heart of scripture become the central heart of your life? Has there ever been a time in your life when you received Jesus? Let's close in a time of prayer. Would you bow your heads with me and close your eyes? Lord, as we look into your word, we're amazed at the detail. We're amazed at how it all fits together. And it proves beyond a shadow of a doubt that you have a plan, that you are real, that you have sent your son. That salvation has been made possible. It all points to the fact that we can rely on you. We can trust in you. Thank you, Lord. So, Lord, fire us up as your people tonight to be your soldiers, to be your servants, to be proud bearers and champions of the cross. And then, Father, I want to pray for anyone here tonight who's never received you. If that's you, I want to lead you in a prayer. Maybe you've never done that. Maybe you thought getting to heaven meant being religious, being as good as you possibly can, being better than the next guy. No, the only way to to heaven is to have your sins forgiven, completely washed away. 
all your sins, past, present, future, wiped away so that you are perfect in the eyes of God. And the only way that's possible is by placing your faith in Christ who died for you. And he is very much alive. On the third day he rose again. He is seated at the right hand of God in the heavenly. And one day he's coming again and we'll see him. The Bible says that when two or three gather in his name, there he is present. Jesus is right here. And he will save you right now. Call out to him. Pray this prayer. You say, Lord, I want you to save me. Wash away all my sins. Thank you for dying on the cross for me. Be my Lord. Be my Savior. Take my life and use it for good. I want to be a servant. I want to be a soldier for you. Fill me with your spirit. Make me born again. Child in your family forever. In Jesus' name, amen. Oh,